My biggest fear would be when the first comes and I don't get the rent. I found that my tenant had dumped concrete down my toilet. Can you believe Fair Housing fined me $5,000 for that? How do you onboard your tenants? What do you do? I don't even know if I do it right. If you're a landlord, don't just rent, rent perfect. The Rent Perfect Podcast with property expert and private investigator, David Pickron. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Rent Perfect Podcast. We have Jake Beeson here, one of my favorites. Jake, how are you doing today? Hi, good, David. Thanks for having me back. Oh, I'd love to have you back. I just, I love the way you manage. I love the way you deal with people. You have such a good knack for you and you just have such a, just a big personality and I just, I love your style and I love to learn a lot from you. We've both been in this business for a long time. Yep, we've had some high-level and low-level discussions about <laughs> yes. the landlord business over the years. But uh, you are now into something that I've never gotten into, so I'm really excited about today's podcast because it's something that um, I really am looking forward to to learning about and kind of venturing in to see if maybe I want to do it, maybe I don't want to, based on what we talk about today, um, and that is low-income housing. Right. Um, you know, let me just start by saying, you know, low-income housing for me has always been people destroy your homes. Uh, a lot of crime, a lot, of, and, and I know this is all stereotyping, and this is n- what we're going to get away from today. But right. for my landlords that are listening, that might have heard all the horror stories in the past, and it's changed a lot. And uh, so I kind of want to just get an updated from your mouth, from a friend I trust, and just let me know how it kind of changed, and if there's a little bit of a play there for landlords out there looking for maybe a new way to go with a long-term hold. Right. Exactly. And. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. It's been interesting for us because of a relationship that I'm grateful for and I developed many years ago uh, with a nonprofit organization. They approached me about a year ago and said, Jake, we're in the process of um, acquiring some low-income housing properties. There's a couple nonprofit organizations, and they've sort of combined them um, to give a high-level overview of what happened. But they um, brought them to me and said, Jake, we'd like you to manage these 120 low-income housing units. And you're like, new project, new challenge, let's go. And I said, because of the relationship I have with Nancy, who's the director over there, I said, absolutely yes. And Nancy said, are you sure? And I said, (laughs) absolutely yes. And if you ask me nine months in, I still say absolutely yes, maybe with a little bit less excitement. Uh But um, it's been interesting. Absolutely yes, I'm almost sure. (laughs) That's how I feel now. But it's, it's really been great. It's been a learning experience for us. Well, I look forward to hearing about it. So tell us about kind of the project you took over, maybe some of the challenges that you had as you took over. Then let's go in to talk about how Section 8 works. You know, is the properties, you know, more taxing, more time? You know, what are some struggles with that? How is it different from regular? And then, you know, maybe let's talk about rents and stuff like that. So Love to. So with low-income housing, it's it's a broad term that folks use. And with our organization specifically, it's a nonprofit organization, and in the charter or the organizing documents of this nonprofit, the reason they exist is to serve low-income housing, to serve low-income families. And so the way ours is set up is you have to qualify on a low-income basis before we can even rent to you. So we don't ask how much money you make. We ask how much money you don't make. <laughs> yeah. If you earn too much money, you right. don't qualify to rent one of our units, and right. there's a lot of paperwork and things that go into that. Because we're a nonprofit and because we exist to serve low-income families, there's a lot of paperwork involved. And when you think of low-income housing, you're going to have more paperwork than a regular house. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but you need to remember there's going to be more paperwork involved. And it's not difficult, and it's not hard. It's just a few more pages of things you're going to have to fill out. 
Okay, is, it, is that something we can put on and sign digitally? Is it something we can make easy, or is it just, I mean, are we talking just paper, paper, paper? We have done it digitally now. The federal government's getting better and better because in many cases, these low-income housing programs are administered by or looked out for by the federal government, okay. and they've done a lot better job. I can find most of the documents online. I can use fillable forms. Uh, we bounce them with electronic signatures. We've okay. been really lucky, and... Strangely enough, we've found that the federal government employees we're dealing with now, we've found them to be super effective, more so now that they're all working from home, I think, and they seem to be in a better mood and seem happier about everything now that they're working from home. And when I asked someone the other day, she said, we don't really have any plans to go back to the office. So I'm really excited. I think this is the time for landlords to take a hard look at low-income housing because Man, if the federal government side is really effective and moving your paperwork through quickly, it makes it way easier from a landlord perspective. Absolutely. So technology-wise, can you can you kind of go through, um, you know, you have a bunch of, of I'm going to call them normal rentals, right. right? That you set up uh, your procedures and your policies. You know, you come through and you have them digitally signed. It, it, can, you, can you get there with low-income housing or are you stuck with their program? It's been kind of fun for the low-income housing because the federal government... Um, on that side of it, they're sort of, they do okay. Okay. Really good with email, really good with phone calls, digital documents. Now in the old days, pre COVID, we'll call it, they were really into the wet signatures. Do not sign something electronically. And some of the documents actually say this needs to be an ink and pen signature. I looked at a document the other day and I kind of chuckled because <laughs> I thought, man, they were really serious. And I would always sign it with a blue or a red pen right. just to make sure they knew that I had signed this. And nowadays, they'll take all of them digitally. Okay. DocuSign is the one we use, but there's a lot of them out there. But I think they got forced into it, and frankly, I think they're going to go that way. Now, on the tenant side of it, when you're dealing with low-income housing, in many cases, you're dealing with families that maybe aren't as sophisticated from a technological perspective. I mean, if you look at the statistics of who has internet in their home, it's pretty scary. Lots of families that are struggling financially right. don't even have the internet in their homes. And the only internet they have is on a, on a smart device, a tablet, a phone which still works. But, you know, when I rent a house in Phoenix, um, they're doing the application online. They're doing, we're doing the screening online through RentPerfect system. All that stuff happens very quickly online. They can snap photos and send us pictures of their ID, send us pictures of right. their pay stubs. Hey, can you verify your income? Bam, on their phone. They're sending me 12 months of bank statements right. in five minutes. Right. Now, when you're dealing with a, a family in low-income housing, it's a little bit different. They might have a little bit more struggle gathering their paperwork. I met with someone at a picnic table the other day to sign a lease. I hadn't done that in years right. because we just don't sign leases in person anymore. We don't take applications in person anymore. We do those. We don't even do them on the phone. They all come in electronically. So right. we've had to make a leap backwards technologically, but frankly, it's been kind of fun because you remember, oh wait, remember when we used to have this printed application and someone would sit in our office and fill it out? Yeah. We yeah. hadn't done it in years. Yeah. So I had to go find it. It had our <laughs> old address on it. It had our old logo on it. Right. And so, yeah, a step backwards technologically, but our limited experience so far has been the families are really sincere and they're really looking for housing and it's, it's been okay. So how big, um, how important is the background investigation for your low income? Does the government kind of steer you away from that? Do they have you do it? Do they do it? Tell me about how that works. I believe that the voucher programs and the, when uh, the vernacular we use is Section 8. Section 8, I think the proper term for it now is a housing choice voucher okay. program. They actually have some screening procedures before you can 
join that program. I don't know what those are, but I know yeah. they do screen some. And I know that they're pretty strict if you go to requalify and you've been convicted of a felony or have some struggles that you are at risk of losing your subsidy or voucher from the government. We screen them exactly the same as anyone else. Okay. For, from a fair housing perspective, um, frankly, we've been really happy with your system over the years, and so we haven't seen any reason to update or change our procedures to screen differently for low-income families than we would for somebody that maybe okay. didn't have a low-income subsidy. Uh, in their income, is that super important to you, or because they are kind of backed up by the government, income's not a big deal? We don't look at it as closely if they have a voucher, because the way the voucher program in many cases works is they have a voucher for a certain type of unit. For example, uh, there'll be a lady with two kids, a boy and a girl, mm -hmm. and she'll have what's called a two-bedroom voucher. And that voucher is pinned is is pinned to a number that the federal government has derived from their research, and they'll say, well, if you live in the city of Phoenix, and you have a voucher for a two bedroom house, we, the federal government, will let you rent a house up to pick a number eleven hundred dollars a month. Okay, and they bring that voucher to me, and that sort of counts as the income piece. Okay. And if I decided to accept Section 8 in my homes right now, I could take that voucher. And then do I sign up with the federal government to say, hey, I am now a Section 8 housing provider? Absolutely. Not on a, not on a high level, as you're saying. Not on a f it's, it's not as formal, maybe, as your okay. tone of voice is okay. making it. You're not uh, going to spit in your hand and shake and say, right. I'm together with you. What happens is that this person will have a housing choice voucher in your community. Okay. So, for example, you'll have a Phoenix voucher or, you know, we're in the Phoenix area and the suburbs of Phoenix. So you'll have a Phoenix voucher or you'll have a Chandler voucher or a Mesa voucher or a Gilbert voucher. Okay. They're by city. So someone would come uh, to us with a Phoenix voucher and they would call you on the phone and they'd say, hey, Mr. David, uh, do you take Section 8? And you can say yes or you can say no. You don't have to accept a tenant that is paying with a voucher. You don't have to. You can say no. If you do say, yes, I will accept Section 8, they're going to have you fill out about a nine-page packet. It's not hard. It's just information about your house because what you're doing is demonstrating to the federal government, number one, yes, I, David, will partner with you, the government, to pay the rent. And number two, my house will meet your standards. And so you're going to put bedrooms and baths and you know, just basic stuff about the house. When was it built? You have to provide asbestos and lead-based paint information, all of that stuff, which you should have anyway. Yes. You provide that package to Section 8, and then they'll come do an inspection. Now, lately, they haven't been doing the inspections in person in all of the cities. Phoenix has decided they're not doing inspections in person. You have to fill out a very detailed form that talks about safety in your property. Do you have any bare wires? Do you have any... I think there's a question about broken-off light bulbs. <laughs> like, is there a light bulb broken off in the yeah. socket or something, which seems yeah. very specific, but obviously they've had problems with it. Smoke detector batteries. Is there a fire extinguisher in their house? Very specific safety items. And then once a year, they have the right to come inspect the house and recertify. Our experience has been your house is no more likely to get beat up or you're no less likely to go without rent with a housing choice voucher recipient than you are with a person maybe who doesn't have a voucher. So the stereotype or the, the conventional wisdom that your Section 8 houses are going to get beat up has not been our experience. Our experience is a person without a voucher is just as likely to beat up your house and not pay as someone else would. That's, that's good to know because that is something that I think a lot of uh, Rent Perfect clients worry about is wear and tear, you know, uh, on the property and not ever being in this or talking to somebody. It's great to hear from you that uh, in your experience, not to say it won't happen, 
Absolutely. Because you never know who's going to, you know, destroy the property. Um, if I have an issue with, um, I'm suspecting drug use or sales or whatever, how, do, how does an eviction go on a low-income housing Section 8 voucher? What, what happens there? In the Phoenix market, and, and we work under Arizona law, okay. and so your state may be different. In the Arizona market, it proceeds exactly the same way, except we are required to provide a copy of that notice to the Section 8 office. Now, because Section 8's paying most of the rent, in most cases, Section 8 pays two-thirds of the rent, okay. and the actual participant, the tenant, pays one-third of the rent. So for argument's sake, let's say you have a house that's $900 a month. You're going to get a check from the federal government, from the Section 8 office, for 600 and then the tenant, you know, uh, Susie Smith, is going to send you a check for 300 So you're going to get two payments every month. Okay. Now... If something happens, if they move in an authorized pet, unauthorized occupant, you suspect drug activity, we treat it exactly like we would in the other tenant that had those problems, okay. except you have to provide a copy of the notice to the Section 8 office. And for us, our process servers, our attorneys, all of our service providers, including uh, Rent Perfect, they know how to do that. We just have to tell them it's a Section 8 tenant, and they take care of it. They know where to take the documents. So from an eviction perspective, is it an, it's an extra piece of paper. It's not a big deal. So that Section 8 person that you give the notice to, are they more, are they act like a counselor or are they just an office? Or is there, are they somebody you can call and say, hey, I've got a pet in here. Do they come in and say, hey, guys, you got to get rid of your pet? I mean, are, do they get involved or they just go, okay, I'm out of it? So when you say the Section 8 person, you're talking about a person at, like the, the, at, government the, at the Section 8 office, right? right. right. So they're not really a caseworker, uh, meaning they're not, I don't think, in all aspects of the person's life. But they do have accountability for a section of, like, for example, City of Phoenix, if your tenant's last name starts with A to L, then your person is gotcha. John Smith, if it's the next letter of the alphabet. Now, I don't think they have accountability for them on the level of, hey, don't smoke in your house, no dogs. But it does provide an extra layer of reporting. So, for example, if David's living in my house and I see a dog tied up in the front, I'm going to say, hey, David, get rid of your dog. But I may also send an email over to the Section 8 office and say, let's see, this person, last name is G, so it must be Susie Smith. Hey, Susie, it's Jake over at Beehive Property Management. David's living in one of my houses, and it seems like they have an extra pet over here. What can I do? Can we work together on this? We really like David. He's a good tenant. We're grateful that he's a part of your program, and we're glad to have him. If that's true, if it's not true, don't say it. <laughs> if you think he's a jerk and you wish he left, feel free to tell him, hey, we've had a ton of struggles with David. This is right. the last straw. He really cannot have this dog right. tied to his front door. Right. For us, it's been just an extra layer of maybe someone looking over their shoulder, okay. which we're comfortable with. It makes our clients more comfortable because... There's just an extra layer of accountability maybe for the tenant. Now, I do not understand how someone can lose a housing choice voucher. I know there are rules that you have to follow or the government's going to stop paying your rent. I don't know those rules. I do know that under certain circumstances, someone can lose their voucher. And remember, it's tough to do that. We have families that have been on vouchers for 20 or 30 years. Right. So they tend to follow the rules because... Man, if the government's going to pay two-thirds of the rent for the rest of your life... Not, not ruining that deal. Maybe don't get a dog. Yeah, yeah. Maybe don't smoke in your house. Maybe don't have your brother-in-law move in with you who likes to sit on the porch and, and smoke marijuana right. unless he has a marijuana card. Um, okay, so I imagine that over this last year, you've gotten a lot of rent then if you're only having to really collect one-third of what the property's worth. Right, and the government sends the other uh, right. two-thirds. Right. I'm hoping the government's following through with their words, so I'm assuming you're getting that check. Yes. How about this third that you talk about? 
the third almost always comes in as well. You're no more or less likely to get that one third of the rent than you are from a non subsidized non housing okay. tenant. Does it come in late, later, same? A- any difference there? If I at had all? to guess, I would say it kind of trickles in. Okay. But again, if you're renting for 900 a month and you have 600 in the bank on the third, the government tends to pay on the third. If you have the 600 like clockwork, man, the 300, if it's a couple, three days late, and, we, and, and they have to pay the late fee if it doesn't show up. Right. So honestly, we tend to not worry about it as much because we know they're good for the two thirds. But again, no more or less likely to be late than anyone else would be. Does the 600, we're, and in our example, right? right. It's not all 600, but the, the two thirds, though, in our example, the 600. Does that count in Arizona under a partial payment then? Or how, do, how does Arizona see that? I'm not sure how states would see if rent's coming in partially paid and I, you don't get the other part. I don't think that we, I'm trying to think back over many years. I don't think we've ever evicted a section, a, a, a housing choice voucher holder for non-payment. Okay. So in answer to your question, I would suggest that, yes, that 600 that comes in is a partial payment. And if we were to go to court, we would have to provide a document to the court. And again, this is Arizona law. So sorry if we're getting too deep for you folks in other states. Um, But you need to check with your attorney to say, hey, does this consider partial payment or not? And how does our state handle partial payments? Hey, we got the 600 for the government. David hasn't paid his 300. What do we do? And our attorneys, I'm sure, would know in a second. No, absolutely. Well, that's awesome, Jake. So just let's just recap. Okay. Okay. Normal property management, low-income housing. Give me some good and bads, and we'll wrap this the podcast pro, the, the pros of the, of the set, what we'll call Section 8, okay. um, Housing Choice Voucher, the pros are you're always going to get your money. Mm-hmm. You have maybe another person looking over their shoulder over at the Section 8 office. Again, it's not case management. They're not going to go bang on their door and tell them to follow the rules, but it is just another layer that you can reach out to. Um, and they'll stay a long time. If you look out for them, they'll stay a long time. And Section 8 actually comes out and does rent surveys. Like, you can file an application to raise the rent every year if you choose to. If you take good care of the Section 8 tenants, they'll stay a long time. So if you're looking for something steady, do the paperwork up front. And you can go on to, there's a website called gosection8.com. Okay. Don't, don't work for them. They're not paying us. Okay. But we advertise there. And when we're looking for tenants that have vouchers, because tenants that have vouchers qualify for low-income housing, which in my portfolio is okay. The cons maybe are the same. The paperwork, um, you're going to get a tenant in some cases that maybe feels a little bit less accountable because the government's paying their rent. And maybe, uh, they, maybe they stay a long time. Maybe that's a con as well. <laughs> um, in the current market, and here's, here's the rub. In the current market in Phoenix, it's so busy right now. We put a house in the market, we'll get 25 calls over the weekend. Right. The Section 8 tenants right now, the voucher holders right now, are kind of getting squeezed because if they do have to move, a regular landlord, a guy who's not a management company who maybe doesn't understand it, doesn't want to do the paperwork, is scared of it, right. is not going to take a Section 8 voucher. And he's certainly not going to start taking a Section 8 voucher now in a market where he's getting right. 15 calls on his house. At full boat. Yeah. Right. And, and Section 8 pays full boat. The struggle is there's just a lot more work to get there and time and energy and paperwork. So families with vouchers right now are kind of struggling if they have to move. And I've talked to people saying, I've been looking for a place for three months with my voucher and no one will take it. And as a result, with our low-income housing, we've had kind of a boom because we, we can't take folks that have too much income right. 
but because they have a voucher, they qualify as low income so we can rent our homes to them. And so we've been really lucky. I signed four leases last month. I have another one I'm doing right now. And so, and that's just me kind of poking around the edges. I talked to a woman that runs a shelter the other day that says, Hey, I have 25 ladies that have vouchers. And again, that voucher pays full price and there's some accountability there. And so we've had really good luck with it. So before a landlord says, Nope, Nope, Nope. If you go to your local investment club and they say, stay away, take a hard look at it. It's, it's not as bad as your local investment club will think, Oh my gosh, I had a section eight tenant once and they had nine dogs and they beat up my house. Mm -hmm. That's no more or less likely to happen. Those are the stories that are told. We've heard the same ones. We've probably told them. Well, Jake, thank you so much. You've really, you know, you've changed my mindset going into low-income housing. Great people, uh, you know, need some help. We should help them. This housing prices, as you know, are going out the roof. Yep. More and more and more of our society is going to go to low-income housing. Yep. Uh, If, if, you know, these wages don't follow uh, these rent increases and these, these home prices, so I think it is something that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we need to know about and look into and not be really afraid of if you have the right property for it. I think you need the right property. Yep. At least I would need the right property for it. And Jake, we really appreciate all the insights. Always great to have you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Have a great day. And until next time, continue to rent perfect.